I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Hannah Reyes-Morales. Hannah is an atypical guest for us here on Deep Convection in that she is not a climate scientist. She's a photojournalist. So we're branching out a bit more this season. But Hannah does connect to our interests here in that some of the themes she focuses on in her work are climate, oceans, and natural disasters. Also, though, there's a deeper connection that comes out especially later in the conversation in that science and journalism share some elements in common as professions, and scientists and journalists face some similar challenges in the current historical moment. I should probably explain, though, how Hannah and I got connected. Presently, she's a fellow at the Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination, which is physically located at Columbia's Reed Hall facility in Paris, France. The Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination has year-long fellowships that they give both to Columbia faculty and unaffiliated artists, writers, and intellectuals of various sorts. So Hannah's one of those, and she's been spending this year there, and I visited for a couple of weeks in October 2022 as one of a few shorter-term visitors that the CIII has supported. And they put on various events for the fellows, and at a dinner on one of the first nights I was in town, Hannah and I ended up sitting next to each other. And she said, oh, you're the climate guy, right? I want to talk to you about typhoons. So we were off to the races there, as you might imagine. Hannah comes from the Philippines, and as she explains, that means she grew up with typhoons. And as a journalist working in her home country, it was almost a given that she'd cover them. So that was our first point of connection, as she identified. But also, I've always been interested in how we communicate about climate and weather, obviously, as I'm doing a podcast here. And communication in both pictures and words is Hannah's profession. But there's much more than that in this conversation. As a child in Manila, Hannah was drawn to the photographs in the stack of National Geographic magazines in her house. The idea that she might herself one day be a Nat Geo photographer seemed to her as remote and unachievable as being an astronaut would have been. Except that it happened. Not the astronaut part, but she did become a photographer for National Geographic, among many other outlets. So she tells the amazing story of how she got there, step by step. There were some lucky breaks and accidents, but also a tremendous amount of determination, inspiration, hard work, and intelligence, not to mention just being great at what she does. We talk about a few of Hannah's specific projects, including one she did on sex workers in the Philippines that were forced into that business by losses they suffered in Typhoon Haiyan. And we talk about Emerging Islands, the residency program Hannah has co-founded to bring artists and scientists together on themes of ocean, nature, and climate. So on the face of it, this is an unusual episode of Deep Convection. But actually, I think that if you listen to it, you'll find it makes complete sense. So with that, I give you my conversation with Hannah Reyes-Morales. Thank you for doing this, Hannah. Of course. I'm super excited to chat again, albeit remotely. So you're in Paris, mm-hmm. and I'm in New York. Yes, I am in Columbia's Institute for Ideas and Imagination. Usually, we start with pe- go right into people's biography, but that's because we know where everybody else ends up because everybody else is a scientist. But I mean, maybe you should say a little bit about you know what the connection is. I mean, your interest in climate and oceans, and then we'll come back to it. But just to sort of so people understand why we're having this conversation. Right. So I am a photojournalist slash documentary photographer slash I suppose now I can identify as a writer. Um, I grew up in Manila, 
And I'd always wanted to be a photographer and I'd always wanted to be an explorer. But at the time, you know, like in my little room in Manila, in my home back in the Philippines, being a photographer, being a journalist was like asking the world to be an astronaut from Manila. And I didn't know that any of that was possible. You know, the, the short version of it is that I eventually found a way to wrangle myself into this field. And I sort of cobbled together my education in photography. Once I started being a photojournalist, one of the things that I first covered was typhoon aftermaths in the Philippines. So documenting evacuation centers, places that were incredibly familiar to me because, you know, typhoons and natural disasters are a very common occurrence in the Philippines. They were a lived experience for me growing up with, you know, multiple typhoons coming in every year, having my own experience of my house flooding up to the second floor, being worried about, you know, my grandma stuck in the third floor in the province. All of these disasters are definitely part of the Filipino psyche. So by the time that I got to photojournalism, one of the things that I got assigned to when I was just an intern at a wire news agency, which was European Press Photo Agency, covering disaster aftermath in the photojournalism world in quotes like that's an easy coverage meaning you know mm. like you don't have to have like special access it's not investigative it's a daily life story for the mm. philippines it's not a special report it's something that happens and commonly occurs in fact i remember i think one of the first pictures that i ever got published in I think it was Time Magazine, Pictures of the Day, was like an image of an evacuation center. I think it was Typhoon Neistat. I don't remember the exact mm. typhoon, but I think it was Neistat. And, you know, like climate was never my focus. And I wouldn't say right now that it's necessarily my focus at the moment because I tend to work on critical issues from the lens of the home environment, meaning I yeah. try to look at how critical issues trickle down to daily life. So, mm. you know, when it when it comes to covering climate and ocean, I look at it from the perspective of like the long-term effects mm. of it rather than just covering the disaster itself. So fast forward to the pandemic, I got stuck in the Philippines and I co-founded a residency program, an arts residency program in a coastal community up north of Manila called Emerging Islands. And the goal of the of Emerging Islands is to connect artists with coastal communities and scientists and for artists to feel like they can explore ecological issues and climate, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of artists in Manila don't necessarily feel like they have the authority to do so because they don't have like a science background. They don't have like a journalism background. But we're really looking at like, we want artists to engage with critical issues and especially issues around mm -hmm. ecology. The Philippines mm -hmm. is one of the places that will be the most affected by climate disasters and already mm -hmm. is experiencing the onslaught of climate disasters. And yeah. we want to be able to have more people in the creative industries engage with that issue. Mm. And for me, I thought that this residency, the space that, that we created was really one of the best chances for us to have a more collaborative way of telling stories and also mm. a more expansive way of telling stories, right? So it's, it's not just my pictures, but trying to think in, in various media and trying to understand how climate stories can be told beyond the news, beyond disaster headlines. I'm curious how, you know, you said that from the beginning you wanted to be a photographer and explorer, but you didn't feel that that was possible mm. in the Philippines. But where did that come from? Mm -hmm. How did you connect with those interests? Uh, well, 
When I was a kid, I, li- I lived in a very cloistered environment. You know, my mother was a single mom. We were living in a part of Manila,、uh. and especially Manila in the nineties was not. I mean, it's arguably still not the safest place, but Manila in the nineties was a little more. Crazy,、um, and so I wasn't really allowed to play outside. My mom was、uh, too busy to take me outside. Your mom was working. My mom was working. What? What? Tell me about your family, little. I was raised by a single mother in a house of about you know twelve to fourteen people, depending on the day of the month. And I never had my own bedroom. I never had my own bed. I shared the space with my extended family, so it was my grandmother's house. This、I、is、see. yeah, in a multi generational household. So it was me and my mom and this home. That was full of, you know,、um, my family, and I spent a lot of my time indoors. I see. And photography for me was one of the ways that I really felt I could explore all those worlds that seemed so far away and yet so near through a photograph. What did you look at? What was your source of photographs? My mom had this old shelf full of Life and National Geographic magazines. Oh, I see. I think many households have those, right? Like the dusty old Nat Geo magazines. Right. So I had that, and I was looking、wow. at all these. Yeah, I was looking at all these pictures, and I, you know, had dreamed about all of it. And of course, English wasn't always my first language. But when I looked at the pictures, I felt really connected, and so I would just like look at those and. I would sort of have this like silly dream that someday I, I too would be a National Geographic photographer, and that it's crazy because it happened. <laughs> yeah, and, and you are. It's、we、pretty should... crazy because yeah, it, it happened, and happen. sometimes you know <laughs> I, I still can't believe it. Like I still get overwhelmed by it, and when I think about you know all those all those times, even when I was a teenager, especially like by the time I was like fourteen, and then I. I I first had the internet when I was about fourteen and fifteen. You know, I was starting to to see photography online. It, it just seemed like a silly, silly little whim. And my entire family believed that, right? Like this is Hannah's sort of like little quirk that she likes photography, that she likes visual arts. But of course, I was always going to have a job, like a proper one. <laughs> So let me just understand because the things about these conversations is you know hearing about the different places、mm-hmm. people come from. So, <clears throat> so twelve people in the house, and you and your mom. Did you do you have brothers and sisters? I have have sisters, but I've never met them because、uh, I、oh, grew up、wow. not knowing my father. They're in Australia、oh, wow. somewhere. Yeah,、wow. I, I grew up with cousins. So while I was an only child, I had children around me. I see. And so you had your weird quirk of photography, but everybody assumed you'd have a proper job. So what did they assume you'd be doing? Well, you know, my grandfather worked in a bank, and my mom worked in a bank before she decided that that wasn't for her.、Mm. I, I remember I passed a University of the Philippines entrance exam, which is quite a prestigious school in the Philippines, and it's also、yeah. the state school. So education was, you know, cost almost next to nothing. Well, no, not not at the time. Now it's free, but at the time there was still tuition, so it was still quite a lot for for my mom. I remember my tuition fee was like four hundred dollars, and it was still quite a quite a lot for for us, for me and my mom. So I had to work during、yeah. college, and so my family was super proud. Like my mother was super proud that I passed. I don't think she had、yeah. doubted that I I could make it, but I, I suppose she had assumed that I would take a more traditional path. Yeah. Because I passed the university, and so I would get a job. I would work up the ranks of like a、uh, corporate job or like a bank or something.、Mm-hmm. And I guess the thing was that by the time I was like seventeen or eighteen, I was already working. What were you doing? I was photographing in clubs, in bars. 
Oh, okay. So already made this into a job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I turned it into a job and I was selling thrifted clothes. So I was, you know, mm-hmm. scoring around the city, purchasing thrift clothes and reselling them online. And who, who did you sell the photos, the club photos to? I got hired by a particular bar. Oh, okay. Yeah, that a distant relative of mine owned. And they would put them online or what did they do with them? Uh, they would upload them on Facebook and tag people. And that was a way to market at the time. Oh, I see. Facebook tags were like a way to be seen, right? Yeah, yeah. And so he had a camera. So I borrowed his camera. I see. The, the bar owner. So I was starting to, you know get access to this equipment and i knew i started to learn how to use it and this is real film or no no this was digital already yeah and then eventually i i got my own camera like my mom saved mm-hmm. up and she was just like here have like a very cheap but good slr like a slow lens reflex mm-hmm. camera and yeah so she was she was encouraging of of my my hobbies but at, at the time i think I, I think she just felt sorry for me because i really wanted a camera and i kept borrowing people's cameras and what did you study in the university speech communication okay yeah yeah not related at all <laughs> nothing visual it was all about like, language communication oral communication why not? i mean you could have, have studied photography is that a thing that you could one can do it i really wanted to shift to film there was a film program in the university i see but uh-huh. at the time, it was just too expensive for me to shift because that would mean more years in the school and more uh-huh. years paying rent in the dorm, all of that. You mean because you decided later or because the program takes longer if you do film? Because I would have, sh- I would have had to shift, of course. So you, so you get the degree in speech communications. Mm. You're shooting photography in clubs, selling the clothes online. What else happens between there and that first assignment? Right. So I took an elective on photojournalism. Mm -hmm. And the professor was a photojournalist. And I begged my program to let me do an internship. Right. This is an internship with the wire service, you mean? Yes. Yes. An internship with the wire service. And I just wanted to see it. And I, I thought that I would be doing PA work. I thought I would be doing administrative work. And mm-hmm. instead, on my first day, my professor decides that I would go on the field and he gave me cameras. Oh, so the professor at the university is the one in charge of the internship at the wire service also? Uh, yes. He, ha- he was a working photographer. He had the connection so that, you know, you could do work that would actually yes. be used in media stories. Yes. And I didn't know that that it could happen. It was all a shock to me because that first week or something, the first month, I don't remember anymore. But while I was doing my internship, which was in a long time, I saw my pictures published in Time Magazine, in the New York Times, in The Guardian. And okay, so wait, wait. It was insane. This is, a, this is wait, we got us. We got to, I love, see, I love these stories mm-hmm. where somebody <clears throat> has a meaningful, like gets a meaningful uh, boost from a professor. This is our, you know, so I like to make sure these people get shout outs because, so first of all, what's this person's name? Dennis, Dennis Obaman. And so you sign up for the internship. He says, okay, you think you're going to be making coffee. And then this is when, like the first day, he's like, okay, take your camera, go, you're going to shoot. Yes. And the hilarious thing was I was wearing white pants and, and I was wearing like little sandals. And he sends me into this coal yard where people were like making coal. And so it was it was just kind of insane, you know, that this this young girl like wearing white pants and little strappy sandals uh-huh. was in a coal yard with like big equipment. And I was just like, what am I doing? I try my best uh-huh. and I, I did did what I thought you know, was good. And I learned just like by literally being put out in the field. And, and I'm really thankful for that. What was the story about that was the coal yard? 
it was a daily life story. So, you know, when there's not, when it's a slow news day, often wire photographers will search for like a daily life sort of like feature story that's like visual, visual first. It doesn't have to be like an article or anything. It's just to show, you know, life in different places. And so that went that went live. I mean, you saw that first one when Yeah, I mean the the things that I was doing, I was doing something different, you know, every day of the internship. So like the pictures that I was taking whether whether it was like from the evacuation center or a protest or elections, I would see them out in the media. I just want to hear a little bit more of the emotional reaction of that cuz that's like the big break, right? You've been mm-hmm. you dreamed of this when you were a kid. Well, then you know, you go to the internship and then and then the stuff is actually out there. I mean, it must have been must have been a feeling. I don't remember feeling particularly like overwhelmed by it just because I don't know whether I was in shock or because I just had so much going on. And so all of it was just happening all at the same time. And this wasn't the only photography gig I was I was like really trying it out and dipping my feet in all sorts of photography. And at the I time, see. I don't think that I necessarily wanted to be like a photojournalist. Yeah. I wanted to be like a Nat Geo photographer, whatever that meant to me at the time, but doing stuff for like fashion brands and I was doing weddings and I was doing food photography. I was doing stock photos for a Pilates. I, like I was really hustling. Like I think I was just doing it all at the same time. And then also I wanted to try travel photography because I, I suppose yeah. at the time, like that was a thing. I had a blog. So that's where I learned to sort of like write and put pictures together and storytell. The, the actual big break for me was eventually when I graduated, I started to be able to really like focus on trying to figure out what I wanted to do for work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, one, I, I won a photography contest. Okay. Through Lonely Planet. Oh, and then yeah. Lonely Planet paid for like an all expense trip to France, in fact. And, you know, like that became the cover story for a local language edition of Lonely Planet. Okay. I think that was really amazing because that was an assignment and that was, you know, work. So wait, this is a cover story of like people from the Philippines want to go to France, like a French, mm-hmm. uh, a book about France, being a tourist in France for coming from the Philippines. Oh, it a magazine. Was a magazine. Oh, yeah. Lonely Planet does magazines. Okay. I just, I just know the book. I, I don't know what the format was, but I suppose you can license the brand. Yeah. And I think one of the local publishers in the Philippines had licensed the Lonely Planet brand. But the point is a story about France for a Filipino audience. Yes. So two stories. I won through a story that I photographed about my Manila. So Manila Mm. through my eyes. And that's how I Mm. got the trip to France, which then they published. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to just go back to one thing. You said that before this point, you're doing all these different photography things, sort of trying it out, hustling to the point that seeing your stuff appear in the news, like didn't really register that much because of all the different things going on, but that Mm -hmm. you wanted to be the Nat Geo photographer, like that had stuck with you from childhood. Mm -hmm. So can we meditate for a moment on like what that was like, why? I mean, was it, do you think it was, I mean, do you think it was like the exoticism of like seeing different places around the world and the notion of travel and just unfamiliar environments? Or was it the nature Mm -hmm. aspect? You know, why was that such a powerful thing that stuck with you? Well, I was always drawn to people photographing other people. I don't think it was about landscape photography for me or even the Nat Geo adventure type photography. I was really into like sort of like the anthropological stories of National Geographic. And of course, I see National Geographic has a complicated history that they have been reckoning with as they're trying to diversify their photography, their photographers, they're trying to diversify how they see the world. But, you know, like sometimes I think about that because it was such a faraway dream for me, meaning I thought that 
only white people could go travel the world and photograph in quotes like yes. exotic locations and and so it was super removed from me yeah. it was it was like overly romanticized version of what i thought being a photographer meant yeah. um, in the same way that the walter mitty movie sort of exotifies that lifestyle yeah. like, it looks nothing like that yeah well let's talk about this because i feel like this is a theme that's really present in your work mm-hmm. nat geo so it was this powerful thing for you but the history that you're talking about I'm not an expert in it, and you know it much more deeply than I do, but my sense of it is that it's perceived as at least having a history of being sort of the colonial gaze, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. on the exotic mm-hmm. third world, global yes. south, whatever the yes. word was at the time. Yes. And yet these images were very powerful and motivating for you. There's just many layers of complexity yes, to this. it's so uh, complex. It's such a paradox. And it was something that I also had to unpack or continue to unpack for myself because one of the things that Global South storytellers have to reckon with is like, whose gaze are you mimicking, right? If yeah. you've only seen your land be photographed a certain way and through a certain gaze of someone who's, who's an outsider, who's a foreigner, who has way mm-hmm. more privilege than you. And then as a photographer, you're trying to learn photography, you're trying to mimic that gaze. And it's a little convoluted. Um, and I really yes. had to unpack my own practice and sort of had to relearn and had to do the hard work of validating my eyes, if that makes sense. Meaning yes. I had to learn how to tell myself that what I thought was interesting or what I thought was worth looking at was good enough. Yes. And that wasn't a simple process and it didn't arrive until years years on in my career. But you must have been, I mean, you said that to get that Lonely Planet story, it was based on a a thing you did called My Manila, Mm -hmm. which sounds to me like you had a conscious awareness already of this issue, no? Because yours Mm -hmm. as opposed to whose? Perhaps. Yeah, but I mean, at the time, I also started dating my now husband, then boyfriend, and uh-huh. he loves Manila. And what, or well, uh-huh. I don't know, he's a little jaded about it now, but he loved Manila at the time and was in love with the city. <laughs> and I was also seeing Manila like an adult perspective because, you know, again, my world was very different growing up. As long as we're on this topic, is there anything you can explain about now that you have this conscious mm. approach and that you've spent time trying to have the de- decolonizing gaze, if we can put it that way? Mm-hmm. Is it possible to articulate how that's manifest in the pictures, mm-hmm. how that works? Well, I mean, th- there's particular examples. For example, if I'm learning photography and I'm learning the canons of photography and the canons of photography that's taught to me are Western canons, Yes, I will then try to mimic it and then my photos won't look that way because the world doesn't open up to me the same way, right? And so in some way, it's just really just the act of validating that your perspective allows you to to photograph in a different way and to photograph different kinds of spaces. So for example, a lot of my work is very intimate. A a lot of my work is very Mm. soft and quiet. Mm. And I think a lot of that is is by virtue of of who I am and the space that I occupy, Mm. like the body that I have and the access that I get will be also different Mm. and that's fine like you know like i can build off of that and work through my strengths rather than sort of try to mimic the western media landscape okay so there's not a simple set of um different practices that one can articulate it's more about a perspective and a point of view and maybe we'll come to it through the examples when we talk about some of your other stories yeah I think that it's a very complex and layered thing to unpack. Mm. You know, for example, I'm part of Women Photograph, which is this amazing nonprofit founded by Daniela Zalksman, who's a friend of mine. Mm. They are tracking statistics of whose eyes are we seeing the world from, essentially. 
they track data on whose bylines get to the front page of yeah. some of the top newspapers globally. Yeah. And then they have data on how often that is a male perspective versus a mm-hmm. female perspective, right? Yeah. I think the the numbers when she started that organization was 90 plus percent male. Yeah. And so we're seeing the news and the world through like very heavily male gaze and often a very heavily right. white male gaze, right? Right. And then of course, it's very hard to collate data, I suppose, for other layers or other intersections of right. that. But the world is incredibly diverse and multifaceted. And so of course, your storytellers have to be. I suppose once that was articulated through several different movements in the photography industry, I started feeling much more confident about myself. Yeah. Growing up in Manila, I certainly was raised to think in a way that was incredibly hierarchical, in a way that sort of validates Western institutions, Western people immediately and Mm. seeing those as like immediate expertise, right? Right. I had to unlearn all of that. And, and when those movements started, I started thinking, oh, there's actually knowledge that I have already. So, okay. So it sounds like what you're describing is a lot of it is a confidence issue. I mean, we're just recognizing that if you see something and you think there should be pictures of it, you don't have to second guess yourself that you mm-hmm. have a voice that should be out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not about some way that exactly that you take a picture or the angle you look at or how much you zoom in on something versus something else. It's about a broader perspective of of trusting your own voice. Yes. Trusting your own voice. It has downstream effects to all of that, everything that you've described, right? Like it has downstream effects to like how you work with technicals. Yeah. When I was starting out, I always thought that like, oh, you need to have like big fancy equipment. Yeah. And I'm just like, no, the equipment that I need has to reflect the vision that I have. Yeah. So I'm interested in this because there are analogs in science. I mean, obviously science is historically a very mm-hmm. male dominated field too. And in my career, mm-hmm. I've worked a lot of um, women scientists, some of them younger than me and my, you know, my students and postdocs and so on. And it's hard for me to identify a style of science that's distinctly different. But what is different is that there is a confidence issue. Some of the women scientists uh, as a group, and that's not true of all of them, mm-hmm. but even the extremely talented ones have less confidence mm-hmm. than their male counterparts. Of course. And yeah. I find that I spend yes. a lot of time trying to, a lot of my advice to them is is to try to overcome that, you know, to say Mm. To not be afraid of. Well, I mean, that's difficult though, because so so sorry, I'm interrupting you, but uh, th- that's difficult because you know, like, and, and I struggle with this because I'm a millennial generationally. Yeah. I grew up, and sort of like the discipline that I had was okay. This is the structure. How do I weave my way and maze my way in through the structure and adapt and mm-hmm. alter myself so that I can have more confidence or whatever in the structure? The women younger than me in photography are saying, "Fuck this structure. It wasn't built for us." Right. And so, how could we adapt when you know the institutions were not built with us in mind at all? Right. right? For example, Global South photographers, like how am I going to be like a global Nat Geo photographer with a passport from the Philippines? Right. I have to tell my editor that like it takes four weeks to process a visa to Nigeria. And I had to take an IQ test just to get that. Right. I had to take a psychological exam, write my biography like for the test to, to get a Nigeria visa. Wow. 
Whereas, you know, my counterparts with a different passport can just likely walk in and a visa on arrival, mm. like all these little things, yeah. right? You need sort of like people within those structures who can understand and enable it right. to hold space so you can exist in it. And yeah. I've been so lucky to have worked with editors within these institutions who fully enabled me because they really believe that this is important and they've been understanding and accommodating. Mm. But, you know, the structure simply wasn't built with us in mind. And that's how it is. But a lot of people who are younger than me, I have to learn to correct myself too, because they're saying that that's wrong. And so we must change this. Whereas for me, I'm like, how do we adapt to this, right? Yeah. How, how do I adjust so that I, I can move through it? One thing I'm wondering is how much all these issues that we're talking about can get expressed in the choice of stories. Mm-hmm. There's only a few of your stories that I know about because we've talked about them or they're on your webpage or whatever, but mm-hmm. some of them look like they are expressions of all the things you've been articulating. So for example, you have this Mm -hmm. one on how women in the sex trade in the Philippines are often in that situation Mm -hmm. because they've been displaced by typhoons. And Mm -hmm. that, although typhoon stories are no rarity in the Philippines, this particular angle, um, and then the photos are very intimate. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. photos that are capturing the humans Mm. involved more than Mm. some other ways one could look at it. And I'm wondering if these issues of identity and confidence and seeing things through your eyes are expressed through those choice of stories. In other words, how much agency do you have in deciding your topics? Do you pitch these things? That one in particular was not my story idea. So it was the idea of this amazing reporter, Aurora Almendral, Mm. who I've worked with a lot and who is one of my favorite reporting partners. So it was her story idea. Mm. And of course, she wanted a woman to be photographing it, in particular, a Filipino woman. So she had asked to be introduced to me. And that was the first story that we worked together among several different stories. And so, you know, and she herself is a Filipino woman who thinks super differently as well. And every time I'm with her, like, it's amazing because when you're reporting, you're navigating ephemera, right? And so Mm. you you kind of have to pick out, you know, when there's a detail that stands out, Mm. which bits do you pick out to put in the story, right? And so when Mm. I was with her, like, it it was incredible because her way of thinking was just super different than how I had imagined reporting could be and would be. And so that particular story was sort of assigned to me through her grant. I was also still quite young when I started that story. I was 25, so I was very early in my career. Whilst I had done that WIRE internship, the years that followed it was not working on news stories or storytelling photography. The years that followed it was me working on selling thrift clothes, continuing selling shoes, all of that. So I was still kind of like young in my career when, when she had reached out to me. So you finish college, there's a few years of making a living, selling clothes and shoes. Presumably you're still doing some Mm -hmm. photography one way or another during this time. Right. So what happened was like my big break, I had met my boyfriend at the time who who got a job offer in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. So I moved in with this guy I'd just known for a while to a whole other country. Mm -hmm. And I needed to tell my mother that I had a reason to go to Cambodia and not just I'm going with this guy. It was still a traditional Filipina. So I had reached out to a photojournalist there, Thomas Cristofoletti, who's a dear friend of mine and a wonderful photographer. And he was photographing Cambodia for the New York Times. So you knew him already from your work in the No, I called, emailed him and asked Uh for an internship. And he was like, hey, I don't really need an intern, but we can meet. So he met up with me and I lied to my mother and said that I had an internship (laughs) so I could be with my boyfriend. (laughs) 
So suddenly I wasn't having to worry about rent because it was the first time I didn't have to work five different jobs to pay for rent. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time, I was freed to try to make freelancing work. Mm. Because I had reached out to Thomas, Mm. I wound up meeting other reporters, people working for the Cambodia Daily, for the Phnom Penh Post, people who were contributing to Al Jazeera, to AFP. So suddenly I had a community of journalists, which I didn't at the time have in the Philippines. Right, right. And then before moving to Cambodia, I had applied for a National Geographic Young Explorer grant. It was called a Young Explorer grant at the time, Uh but now it's called an Early Career Grant. And I had emailed someone who had gotten the grant, but I didn't know that I would get it because I was looking at the CVs and bios of these people who got it. They were like graduating from Harvard and all of that. And yeah, yeah. Mostly were Americans, but I decided to apply. Yeah. And while I was in Cambodia, I got the grant. Okay. And so that allowed me to photograph my own project. Yeah. And then I was also photographing on and off for like local newspapers in Cambodia. So I was starting to build something there. I feel like a lot of our audience is, you know, graduate students and young people thinking about careers. So I feel like besides getting a boost from your professor when you were in college who gave you the internship, here the, another lesson is don't be afraid to reach out to people and seek opportunities because mm-hmm. that was key for this story. The other thing, though, that I that I want to understand more is the structure, the sort of structure of a profession in, in photojournalism, how similar is yours is or different from anyone else's. In particular, the fact that you got this grant from Nat Geo was, was, was a big deal, sounds like. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. you're still, you and what you've mentioned so far, these grants are important. Um, in other words, mm-hmm. you get a grant and then you can do a story of your choosing and then maybe the grant mm-hmm. guarantees that they'll run it or you have to still pitch it? No, no guarantee that they'll run but, it. But you, so you have to pitch it again to them or to others? Yeah. Um, well, it just like allowed me to work on a project. The point of it is that it, they fund exploration. Right. I had proposed this project that I always wanted to do about indigenous cultures in the Philippines that often when people photograph indigenous people in the Philippines, they exotify indigenous people. But I noticed that like after they had been posing for photographers, for example, for travel magazines, mm. then they changed back into jeans or, you know, like they, they weren't <laughs> like, it, again, it was like this whole thing where Filipinos are self-exotifying. We were self-exotifying our own culture uh. and to me, it was bizarre. So I wanted to do sort of like a more nuanced piece on the transitions to modernity uh. at the time. And and so I, I pitched that as the like my grant proposal. But yeah, like I remember when I got it, I I super clearly remember the day because we were in Cambodia. I got the email and I started to just like cry. It was just so overwhelming. Like I like that that I could be part of this thing somehow. And then even that was just like a little, you know, I didn't think that I could become a National Geographic photographer. Oh, so the right, this is not just a grant. This is your first actual connection to this organization. Yes, this was the first time that I would be connected to Nat Geo. How typical is it for a photojournalist to work by getting a grants, getting grants and then pitching stories, as opposed to, for example, some must be on staff of right. Nat Geo or something and they get told, go and do a story, or maybe they have to pitch it internally. Mm. Like, how are the different ways mm-hmm. that people who do what you do manage to get compensated for their work and to get it mm. seen? For Nat Geo, for example, I think they only have one photographer on staff, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. But most of the contributors to the magazine are all freelance. Mm. I think, you know, obviously newspapers mm. have staff photographers, but a bulk of the photography is by freelancers. Mm-hmm. So I would say a huge chunk of the industry is freelance yeah and we 
sort of cobble together different ways that we make work, whether you take on commercial work to fund your personal work, or you get grants, or you get assignments, you know, that there's different ways that people go about it. Yeah. Personally, I like the grant structure because I like thinking yes. about context and not just like, in quotes again, sexy stories. Yes. I love research. Yes. Um, and I like geeking out on things. And so I find that that structure in particular works for me. You're a fellow at the Center for Ideas and Imagination. So there you go. <laughs> That's Ideas and Imagination. Institute for Ideas and Imagination. Oh, Institute. Excuse you. <laughs> I hope we can come back now maybe to talk about typhoons because that's a thread that mm -hmm. that we that that connected us yes. mm -hmm. and that also runs through your work from beginning to end it seems to me because mm -hmm. you described as a kid being in some mm -hmm. of them i don't know if you remember which ones they were that flooded your mm -hmm. house up to the second floor or that caused you other mm -hmm. trauma well there was definitely undoy, undoy. there was millennial mm -hmm. yeah those are the ones that i had as a child that i remember were the big ones wait what was the other one after undoy millennial oh millennial Andoy, I remember that one. That was a heavy rain flooding event in Manila, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. The Marikina Dam flooded the city. So this was an experience growing up. You described it as a sort of common experience. You know, typhoons are everywhere in the mm -hmm. national psyche because mm -hmm. everybody's been through them. Mm -hmm. Philippines, we should say, in case anybody you know doesn't know, gets hit more than just about anywhere in the world by mm -hmm. tropical cyclones. It's not a. <laughs> it's it's a, it's just a fact. Mm -hmm. When in, in that in your trajectory did that assignment come where you got assigned the, mm -hmm. to, to shoot a post-disaster scene from a typhoon? Um, that was when I was doing my internship. And I think like for me, you know, I just, just thought about this when you were talking. Because typhoons are part of the fabric of society, I think at the time I wasn't even thinking that this was like particularly a Filipino thing. Right. right? Like in my head, these things just happen around oh, the world. Oh, there's some truth to that. All of these. And it... <laughs> Yes, and and um and at the normalcy or at the rate that it happens in the Philippines, right? And it's obviously very different. But I, I didn't situate it in like sort of like a global context until I worked on the story with Aurora about sex workers being displaced into the sex trade following mm. typhoons, because then suddenly you realize how pervasive the issue is and how deep it is within the fabric of society and how much it seeps through other things that I was interested in, such as women's mm. bodies. That's a, another thread that goes through my work a lot. But I think now my interest is not necessarily just like typhoons, but I think like for a long time, I couldn't wrap my head around thinking about ecology. Mm. And I couldn't wrap my head around thinking about nature mm. because I suppose the literal way of interpreting that into photography is taking pictures of nature yes. in itself. Yes. But once I started thinking about it, I suppose through like a wider perspective you start making connections yeah. around how you know one thing can affect other things how one typhoon can affect a sex trade yeah for example yeah and so you know like i think it wasn't late until later on that i started realizing how connected these things are now i'm really trying to shift my focus in my photography to maybe start really thinking a little more deeply around um, climate issues mm -hmm. Just because I feel like it's this, you know, one of the things that I learned in the pandemic as we founded our artist residency is that when you start thinking about that, you realize that there's no like definitive voice 
there's not a singular person making sense of that Absolutely issue not. for anybody, right? No, true. In photography, it's it's very common, the, the, sort of like the psyche of photography is like, well, you know, the Ebola crisis, the pictures of this one photographer, the definitive pictures of that particular crisis, or right. like this war, we saw it through the lens of this photographer. Right. It's very singular and it's very, you know, individualistic. What I appreciated about photography during the pandemic was that no single storyteller was telling the story of that right, at all. Right. It was a global story that people were photographing right. through their own communities or wherever they were stuck in. And it was multiple perspectives helping us understand it. Yeah. You know, by the time we founded Emerging Islands, it became the norm for me to think that your work is your contribution to understanding. Yeah. You're not trying to just supply for a newspaper. You're not just trying to report right. like a calamity or a disaster, but it, it's really like a contribution to a larger body of knowledge. Right. For me, I really want to try to do more around the relationship of people mm. with the natural world. I'm still at the beginnings of that. Yeah. A lot of the reporting I was doing and a lot of the reporting that I've done over the last six years under Rodrigo Duterte had nothing to do with typhoons, had nothing mm. to do with natural disasters. It was mostly work that was political. It was work that was about the experiences of people under a part very particular regime. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I also sort of like appreciate about my career is that I feel like I get to confront so many different things that mm -hmm. I would not have been able to look at if not for my camera. And that's sort of what I'm trying to enable as well through the residency program that I have I feel like photography lends itself into allowing people to enter spaces that they don't feel like they're the expert in necessarily. Yeah. And I want more artists to feel that way. And I, and in particular, we want to focus on that, but in the context of climate issues and ecology. The other thing mm. about coming to see that there isn't one way to understand these global issues, whether climate right. or, yes. or other issues, I think that's really a powerful thing. I've had that experience mm. as a scientist sometimes, and I've had it very much in recent years mm. in trying to expand the intellectual sort of horizon of the work that I and some of my colleagues are doing to be a little mm. less pure global climate, seeing the earth from space, and a little mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. applied trying to do things that are relevant to humans on the ground. And that's mm -hmm. required learning some new things and starting out with lack of confidence and being kind of afraid to do it because we're trained right. in a certain thing and we don't know. And then you start talking to people and you sort of realize that nobody has a handle on the whole problem. The problems we're talking about are enormous. Nobody has a handle yes. on the whole thing. And when you realize that, you get a lot more confidence. You realize you can contribute something. Maybe you might do something that's been done before, but that's always going to happen. And science and art you know, are pretty different, but they're kind of similar in some ways and you can have the same experience. A yes, growth I mean, by recognizing not that you're so much bigger than you thought you were, but that the world is bigger and, you know, there's much more space in it for you than you thought. And that mm -hmm. makes you bigger without having used yourself to change. You just have to realize that the context right. is, is different than you thought it was. You thought there were people who knew how to do everything. You know, at some point you realize there's no oh real grownups in the yeah. room, right? You realize nobody really oh knows God. how to do all that. That's like the biggest revelation <laughs> of adulthood. It's so annoying. When I started realizing that, and especially during the pandemic, I was like, oh my God, nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. And it, it was super interesting. Anyway, I wanted to respond to like one of the things that you, you had mentioned around these things that are like incredibly big like they're hyper objects right like the internet is a hyper object mm. climate 
change is almost like a feels like a hyper object. But I think that the reason that I go so close in my work mm-hmm. is because that's the only way I know how to respond. It's like, well, this thing is so big, I don't understand, I can't comprehend it. So now I'm just going to zoom in. I'm just going to try mm. to understand this one thing about this big issue and I'm going to try to understand mm. deeply that and I'm going to go as close as I can to people. I think like that that's one way that maybe I responded to how big the world is and how big these issues are and how futile solutions seem sometimes and how insignificant I feel as a person. Mm. So I think like, you know, this is one of the ways in which I, ha- I, as a storyteller in quotes or as a photographer, have learned to sort of like respond because otherwise I'll just spiral off into anxiety. And I think that that's why like photography has been wonderful because it is, it, it asks you to be in the world. Yeah. Right. You can do so. You have some, your work gives you some agency. I mean, it gives you something you can do. Yes. Yes. I think it's one way of really feeling like you have some agency. We could just stay with the typhoons a little bit because mm-hmm. looking for images of typhoons, it's sort of there's the view from space and then there's the destruction on the ground of all the different kinds. Yes. That's what you most yes. often see. Yes. And then, mm-hmm. you know, there's the human victims, if you want to use that word. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's a charged mm-hmm. word. But mm-hmm. First of all, there's sort of nothing in between. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of scales yes, in, in yes. between, the, but there's no way to photograph those, right? The, in other words, the, the human with the camera can either be standing there on the ground or, mm-hmm. you know, there's a camera on the satellite. But I feel like there's a lot missing. There's a lot that is impossible yes. to see just because there's no yes. way to visually put it together. And you're, yes. you're posing a different thing, which is that to capture the meaning of these events for people, you want to go in even closer than maybe is typical yes. in the stories about these things. I don't know. I just, right. I, 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 just hearing you talk about well, it, I was thinking about this problem and I just yes. thought maybe you'd say more about no, it. No, I mean, I, I, I want to build on that because I, you know, one of the things that recently I was chatting about with um, my partners at Emerging Islands, Nicola Sebastian, who's also a Columbia graduate, and, and my other partner, David Lochran, who's a curator. And we're talking about disaster narratives. And one of the things that when people think about the Philippines, either they see images of the destruction that happened in the Philippines, like you mentioned, the destruction on the ground and people losing their homes, Mm. people getting victimized by the typhoon. On the flip side, people think of the Philippines as a perfect vacation holiday, Mm. pristine waters and, and beautiful limestone structures and all of these things like a white sand beaches. Mm. And, to us, they're almost like two sides of the same coin, mm. meaning like in both we're merely objects, you know, mm. we as the people involved in these sort of like global imagination of the Philippines were, were objects in that narrative. Mm. And so for us, it's, it's really about creating as many counter narratives as possible mm. and putting it out in the world. So, you know, like for us, like looking at disaster narratives, you know, one of the ways that, that work, Shelter from the Storm, which is the work about how women and girls wind up in the sex trade following typhoons. That's mm. one way of sort of like contributing like a counter narrative to how we think about typhoons, right? Mm-hmm. That this issue isn't just on the day that it happened. Like the right. media will go to the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan, after a month or so, they're gone and the media has moved on, right? Mm. This story was done years later. Mm. And still affecting people it's it's, yeah. it's fully affected lives of human beings in a very long-term way and so you know like for for me for example that was like one way in which uh, we complicate a narrative mm. 
One thing that we worked on recently was this music video um, with a Filipino rock band that was called Kayomangi, and it was about a brown skin. Mm, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that was beautiful. And, you know, I didn't direct it or, or even shoot it. I, I helped curate and conceptualize the video together with Emerging Islands. And that video was in the context of a typhoon. The communities that we photographed there, the mangroves there, for example, were recovering from a typhoon that just happened the week before. In fact, we had to move the, the shooting because of the typhoon. So for us, it was like, oh, how, how do we sort of give a nod to that, right? Meaning one of the communities we chose in particular for that story was a community of mangrove stewards, like people who are planting mangroves. Mm. And, you know, that, that has a relationship with how, how adaptive a community can be to something like a natural disaster and particularly to typhoons. This is one way for us to not just have a story only of the disaster, but also the story of sort of how life continues amidst that. Mm. It's not necessarily, you know, like for the Philippines, for example, resilience is, is a super loaded word. Nobody likes using the word resilience right. because we're always described as resilient following typhoons. Right. And often it's being, it, it's, it's given to us as comfort following like broken infrastructure. Your survival is, is sort of right. honored through this word, but, but in fact, it, it, it masks the other things that aren't available. Right. It's like thoughts and prayers after school shootings here. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. These infrastructures are so broken, right? When I was speaking to one of the sex workers in the story, she described to me that once your house is blown off by the typhoon, one night with a man can maybe get you some hollow blocks. The next night with another man can get you, you the roof. Mm. The next night with another one can get you the paintings. And mm. so, you know, they, the house that they live in is something that they literally rebuilt with their bodies. Mm. And for me, the, the, I don't know, the intersection of all like the things in, in just that one sentiment from her, right? Mm. Like the labor of, of women and how, how women are affected by critical issues in a much more compounded way. Mm but also the labor of her body mm. following the typhoon. For me, you know, th that was one way that I truly understood the, the severity of, of typhoons. Mm, mm. I myself had lived through it, but it's very different when your entire house was blown off in the way that Haiyan did. Yeah, which was the one responsible for the yes, uh, that for, story. For, for yeah. her in particular. Yeah. There's so many other little stories like that that you just encounter when you're reporting on these things. After Typhoon Haiyan, they called the red light district Little Tacloban because all the girls from Tacloban wound up yeah. there. Tacloban being the city that was hit the hardest by Taiyan and really yes. devastated. Yeah. When I was a child, one of the stories that I asked my mother to tell me all the time over and over again was when she came back home after a typhoon, she came home. She was super worried about her grandparents because there was a huge flood. And then when she came home, she enters the house and she finds my grandmother sitting in a bed, in a flood, looking at the sky. And she said, like the, the roof, it's gone. Kind of like a plain sort of accepting face. And this is one of the stories that she, she used to tell me about. I remember that a lot. So, you know, like th these are the things that like, I think as a person in, in the Philippines, everybody has their own private oral histories mm. that are very much in, related to mm. the natural world and natural disasters. You mentioned a lot of political work mm -hmm. during the Duterte years. Partly, I'm wondering whether you see these as just like different themes and you do some some projects on this and some projects on that. Some are about oceans and ecosystems and typhoons mm -hmm. and some are about politics. Or is it all just one spectrum? 
you know, the, the way that I describe my work is that I look at tenderness amidst adversity. And I also mm. look at how critical events and how critical issues manifest themselves in lived experience in daily life and in home mm. spaces. Mm. And so I tend to look at things just more from like a daily life angle. So for example, mm. you know, during the Duterte drug war, the narrative or the primary visual for that was like a lot of dead bodies, yeah. the crime scenes. Yeah. And I was most interested in how life continued after the crime scenes how mm -hmm. mothers would take their children from from seeing the violence next door mm. and try to put them back to sleep mm. and so my general interest is like okay th this is this is an issue in our consciousness uh whether that's a typhoon or mass killings of drug suspects um mass killings of the poor really is what it was mm. and but how does that play out in every day getting to sit down with people and getting to listen to how how they process a certain thing and questioning the victim narratives that we put on people and yeah. looking at how different people with different states of grace, you know, survive these mm -hmm. massive things. How does it work logistically? I mean, if you're going to do a story and you have, and you're doing the story and the images, and so <laughs> you're going and photographing people also. and the writing, right. But I mean, but you mentioned, but you're interviewing people. So how does it work? You go and shoot people and then you say, hey, can I talk to you or? Like, no, it's the other way around. You, you contact them first? Of course. Yeah. I don't tend to just knock on people's doors. Like I, I try to find like a way in or like I have a local guide who'll introduce mm. me. Mm. Yeah. So I, I generally make sure that there's multiple layers for which they can trust me and multiple layers of safeguarding before I even bring out my camera. Are these, are there like standard journalistic methods that are mm. taught or is this something, you know, do you have your own ways that you've figured out yourself? I'm wondering whether this is one way in which the local perspective comes out or is there standard ways of going about this? Well, for me, I did it in reverse because I also worked as a translator and fixer for foreign journalists, ah. meaning I had this knowledge of my own country, my own backyard in quotes. Right. And I saw different foreign correspondents come and the different approaches that they had. Yes. And how I was used as a translator or a fixer or a photographer yeah. in those international stories. And then so yes. by the time I started going international, I was reverse engineering it. Yes. Whereas I think if I went to journalism school, then you, you would know the standard practice. I learned mm -hmm. it from ground up, I suppose. So maybe we can come up to the present. So you've mentioned your artist residency a couple of times, and we should talk more about that. Do you wrestle at all with the question of what impact does it have? And are there mm. ways of making that better? Or what impact do you want it to have? Or mm. is it better not to think about that too much? Because the best way to come at it is just to tell the stories that are real to you for the reasons that you want to tell them and, and trust that instinct. Mm. Do you, is that something you struggle with at all? Well, you know, like one of the things that I have to tell myself or remind myself is that stories themselves have impact, right? Like the act mm -hmm. of, of the story, like narratives have a very strong impact. For example, you know, one of the things that I, that I remember growing up because I was always looking at pictures were images of Filipinos in the St. Louis World's Fair in Misery, mm -hmm. where they took indigenous Filipinos into a human zoo, essentially, and people could take pictures with the indigenous Filipinos mm. and then bring them home as, as photographs. 
And then those photos, of course, like wound themselves back into the Philippines. And then as a child, mm. you're looking at that without context and you're trying to understand like, why does this look wrong? And you don't have the words for it, right? Mm. What I do now, it's sort of like my contribution into sort of having a different way of seeing ourselves somehow represented in visual visual history of how people generally, right, mm-hmm. are represented. And so for me, I already know for a fact that, that like art has value, that stories have value. Um, and And I don't, I try not to overthink that, if that makes sense. Right. And I'm asking this because I think some scientists are going through the same thing. They've had some, mm-hmm. they do the scientific work. This is in some sense what this whole podcast has been about. We do our scientific work already on an issue that everybody believes is societally important, which is climate. Mm-hmm. And we've sort of trusted that our scientific work is mm-hmm. therefore beneficial in some way. And then sometimes you take a step back and look and see that it actually, maybe it isn't, you know. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering whether any of that is conscious in your work or whether you feel like you don't need to do that. Like you're, you're telling stories that need to be told that are about these themes. And so you don't have to try to think too hard about the effect it's going to have. I have a hard time with that because one of the recent things that has happened to me since the swing of the political world into like authoritarianism and populism is that you're sort of starting to see how useless your reporting can be. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I always am anxious about is like counterchecking that the the details that I'm putting in the caption, whether I right. got a child's age wrong, like I spent a lot of time right. trying to track down a mother to make sure that her child was nine or was she ten when I photographed this? What about when publishing? How old will she be? It's like, and then yes. I always worry that if I get that little fact wrong, my entire career is finished and I'm done. Like I'm right. never going to be. And so I'm super conscientious about these details because you're reporting. You want to make sure everything's factual. And then, you know, in comes these people who just swing around narratives, not based on truth, not based on facts. And, and that becomes the popular narrative. And you're just like, well, what was all that for? And it, it was a shock. And, and, and I'm sure that that's sort of similar for scientists who are, you know, showing the facts about. Hannah, oh, my God, exactly oh. the same. We went through yes. the same thing. Like, what are we doing here? Like, you know, if you, can just, if you it's can just if, if you can just lie, like, why are we killing ourselves to get every detail right? Like, who cares? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I had that. And you're just like, effect. why doesn't anybody give a shit? Like, it, and it, it's super disheartening, you know. But like, what am I gonna do? Stop. The reason I'm in Colombia, the project that I'm working on is sort of like one archiving the last six years in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. But the ending of that story was a story about disinformation mm-hmm. and the effects of disinformation on democracy. Mm-hmm. And I did this for the Nobel Peace Center. So I was assigned together with Nana Heitman as this year's Nobel Peace Prize photographer. And we did mm-hmm. a, an exhibition on disinformation landscapes. She did it in Russia and I did it in the Philippines. And I looked at Maria Ressa, who, who was a Nobel Peace Laureate last mm. year for the first Filipino Nobel Peace Prize Laureate, mm. and looked at her work, what she was saying as a journalist, talking about the importance of facts, talking about the importance of information, talk about the importance of journalism, and sounding the alarm essentially for how, you know, technology, social media, and, and the landscape of the internet is sort of complicit in how the breakdown of of facts happens and how simple narratives are the ones that are most pervasive, right? Mm. I photographed sort of like a visual response to the things that Maria Ressa was talking about, about facts, about the importance of narrative, of story, about the importance of doing this work and continuing this work. And, And it actually, as much as I 
really fell down the rabbit hole of disinformation networks and actually having to watch, you know, the YouTube videos about, <laughs> that were filled with like all these like fanciful mm. stories. I, I was really feeling hopeless and super depressed just looking at disinformation like for 24-7 for, for the period I was working on that piece. Mm. When I got to Oslo to open the exhibition, Maria Ressa, you know, gave her talk and she still had this belief that this work is important and that more of us need to continue. And more of us just need to have the courage mm. and not feel disillusioned about about it because it, it is important. And and so sort of like that was like one way that I had hope. There's things that are beyond our scope of control. But for me, that's why I, I often describe my work as my contribution. Mm. Like these things that we're thinking about, like climate, information, and, and the war on narratives, all of these things are, again, like they're hyper objects. They're incredibly big, but we sort of have to keep denting because it's just important that we do. And, and yeah, like it, it is incredibly frustrating and often it feels futile, but mm. I suppose that's a part of me that, that perhaps is, is still an optimist. The way to respond is through this work because, you know, how else? And th this is the medium that I know how to do. So do you want to say anything more about um, the Emerging Islands residency? You mentioned it as a, mm -hmm. a way to make space and possibilities for artists. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say anything more about the themes of it and how that purpose connects to those themes? Or? Well, I want to go back to your last question around like impact okay. um, and, and relating Good. it to Emer Emerging Islands, actually, because one of the things that I felt when I moved to Paris for my own fellowship, one of the things that I uh, sort of felt was like wow there there's just space for art here like the, the, there's no mm. question about the value of, of having art spaces right like there's no question about right. the value of of beauty the value of of engagement through art and yeah. that, that's not a luxury that we have in the philippines i suppose because you're coming from a place of just survival art almost feels frivolous yeah but then coming here it's been interesting and i don't think that i have the answer yet but uh coming here has been interesting because suddenly i'm in a place where the baseline is that we need it as a society yes i don't know i suppose that that's just a powerful thing to to affirm as a uh, as someone working in the creative field yeah so for emerging islands for me perhaps like the most important part of that is is how i don't feel as alone as I do when I'm just doing the photography on my own. Even mm -hmm. if all of us are from coming at it from different fields and the artists that we work with are like different kinds of artists, we're yeah. all sort of looking at our land, our home, our waters, yeah, and helping each other make sense of it. Right. And the process of that on its own has value, like storytelling, you're thinking about audience and all of that. But for me, like a lot of the things that I've worked on and a lot of the ways that I've thought about my photography, I am often my first audience member, meaning what do I still want to see in the world and how can I right. produce it? Emerging <clears throat> Islands has, has made me feel less alone in that, that we're building something together. Yeah. What we're doing is like very community based. It, it doesn't have to be such a grand, you know, thing that opens in the MoMA or whatever. It's just like our own thing, right. like our, our little community and, and, how we make sense of the things happening around us and the language and the medium is through art and art has very diverse language and very diverse ways of looking and, and that has helped me 
as an individual. And I don't doubt that it helps others as well. And it helps us make sense of, you know, our place in the world and, and, and our, our, our shared future in some way. And the ocean theme comes because the ocean is right there. Well, the ocean theme comes because, you know, the Philippines is an archipelago, right? And yeah. one of the things that, that is both wonderful and difficult about being from a country of 7,000 something islands is the ocean. You can look at it as a thing that like separates these islands, but we, we've sort of like tried to look at it as a way that we connect. Yeah. And that's sort of the thinking that we've been doing is inspired by the landscape of the Philippines itself. Took me a while to understand that, for example, that I, as a Manila, like a, a Manilenia, a person from Manila, this mega city is an islander. I am an islander, but it was an urban islander. And, and, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the meaning of that is super expansive. And the fact that I even have mm. like all these stories to tell you about typhoons, I think I didn't realize that that, that was so influenced by, by the, the structure of the land and the ocean in itself, right? Right. And where we were located in the world. Being here, for example, in Paris, being in Colombia, I'd never in my life ever dreamed that I could be affiliated with like an Ivy League institution in any way. This is a, another mm. astronaut kind of dream for, mm. for me as, for, for, for me as the, you know, like a, an older version of me. But, you know, one of the things that I, I try to hold on to being here is that, that my own experience has value. And I think that, the, and, and that my knowledge um, from growing up has value, even if it's not, you know, the, the kind of value that I, I thought was important growing up. Do you imagine modes of scientist and artist collaboration through emerging islands or are there other ways? Do you have any vision of, of how that could work? We, we, we have had um, several workshops, for example, where we involve both an artist and a scientist, where okay. an artist both the artist and the students respond to the scientist's work and sort of like create mm. like a visual response to it. Uh, that's one yeah. sort of like simple um, yeah. format that we have, but has had incredible, incredible um, impact. So for example, my team went to Bangkok recently and one of the scientists who's a very close friend of mine, Shin, who's also a photographer, he's a marine biologist and a photographer. He works a lot in marine protected areas. Mm -hmm. And we worked with, a graphic designer, an illustrator, Jonathan J. Lee, who was teaching um, Thai students procreate. And they imagined different scenarios for marine protected areas, depending on sort of like different elements. So whether it was, let's say, a typhoon hits the marine protected area, how does the whole ecosystem risk? What happens to the entire ecosystem? If there's a resort that opens in the coastline, what happens? So it was called Once Upon mm. a Coastline. So these are some of the ways that we involve, you know, both. Before we run out of time, I want to um, mention that um, as I'm looking at your the webpage now, which is beautiful um, for Merging Islands and shows a lot of the images of a lot of the works that people have done, as well as the music video you mentioned before. One, the thing I absolutely love most about your webpage um, is that you have built the science part into it because you have this quote from Ilya Prigogine, who's a um, mathematician, mm. I believe, um, or maybe he was a chem, I can't remember what his actual field was, but he was a physical scientist of some, or mathematician of some kind uh, who did um, work on what's known as dynamical systems theory. And you have a quote here, when a system is far from equilibrium, small islands of coherence have the capacity to shift the system. Mm-hmm. 
where did you find that and what is it um, Nicola found and, that so I do not take credit for that quote um, but it's been a north star for us um, because like we really think you know like for us it's like islands of coherence and we're shifting the system and it, like one of the things that like you know like in the Philippines where like the structures are, are failing us and um who are angry all the time. Like I certainly feel that like the only time that I've ever felt like um, enabled has been when I felt these islands of coherence through. But through do, you, do you know the, the, um, this do, is do you, a theory you, itself, the, the scientific meaning. Well, what he's no. talking about there is like, <laughs> it's dynamical systems theory. So dynamical system theory is a mathematical mm-hmm. sort of bunch of ideas about nonlinear systems where, mm-hmm. you know, something can oscillate or it can move around crazily. So chaotic chaos theory is about some types right. of dynamical systems are unpredictable mm-hmm. and erratic. So an island of coherence is like if you have something that's a system that's moving around chaotically, mm-hmm. then you can have an island co- of coherence. It's like a coherence in the solution space right. of the system. So it means that it'll do something regular and predictable for a while. It'll right, sit in some predictable right. regime before going and behaving chaotically again, which is what it's doing most of the rest of the time. Right. That's the kind of the islands of coherence are are not you know physical islands in often they're they're islands in in the sort of state space the behavior mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the system and these this, these analogies are just really um, really beautiful and I think uh, yeah I, I love that you put that on the webpage. And I love, I also love the use of the words, right? Like chaos and islands. These are things that like often come up and then just, it was just put so beautifully, truly like a North Star for us, because in some ways it it gives us sort of like a direction. We have the capacity to shift the system. Is there anything else we didn't talk about that we should? No, I'm I'm good. I think I sometimes often I'm tired of of hearing myself talk. Um, No, no, I I, really appreciated it. Thank you. Me too. And I mean, you know, like uh, one of the things that like I think this is doing is just like the knowledge sharing in itself, like is incredibly, incredibly helpful. So this has been wonderful. Thank you again so much for doing it. Thank you so much, Adam. And, um, you know, uh, I hope to see you here or there or somewhere. Yes. Come visit Paris again soon. All right. At one point there, Hannah said, art has value and stories have value. And that was when I was asking her about the impact of her work and how she thinks about that and how she stays motivated. And that's a really powerful way to think about it. You just have to have that faith if you're doing the work that she does. And I think scientists too, our work has a narrative element and a storytelling element and a a witness bearing element that's maybe more in common with journalism and even art than we sometimes think. So it was great to connect with Hannah on that and hear her thoughts on how she got to do what she does. And if you want to see some of Hannah's work, you can look at her webpage, which is hannah.ph. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Deep Convection.